give us leadership here, not just what Peter says, but what you're saying to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello? How are y'all? Good? Um, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, Palm Sunday. Since that is the day. Can everybody hear me? Okay. And uh, originally when I was going to speak, I had planned on talking to you guys on something else. I was totally oblivious to the fact that it was Palm Sunday. So it's not something I've looked at very often. In fact, when I look back on the triumphal entry and in the different gospel accounts of, of this event, I'm always struck by how much I do not know and how meaningless this event seems, honestly. It's a, it's a strange event for Jesus to be riding into Jerusalem on a colt, right? And for palm branches to be laid down in front of Him. These are things so foreign to us that, I mean, I have no context for waving palm branches for my wife or my dad or myself or riding donkeys around. And I try to equate it to riding my truck down the driveway and my wife throwing coats out in front of me or something, but it's just not that way. <laughs> but uh, let me read for us. We're going to be in Mark 11. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. And we're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 19. I'd like to just read it and then pray, and then we'll go from there. It says this, Mark 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent, two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them that Jesus had said, what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. As he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Let's pray. Father, I just lift up uh, the hearts that are here, my heart and the heart of every person in this room, and just ask that you would bring about a new revelation 
of how great You are, of how big You are as God before us. That this text would come alive in our presence. That You would speak to us and show us that You are Lord. I pray that You would pierce our hearts and just blow us away. In Your holy name we pray. Amen. So this is a long, this is a long, long passage here. Very long text. And I, I debated for a long time how far to take it. And I kept reading over it. I read all the different accounts. I couldn't pin down which account to go after. And I thought, well, Mark's the shortest. I'll go with that one. And then I started reading it. And I've made it longer and longer and longer. And it ended up 19 verses. And all of a sudden, it's a really long passage. And you're lost in a, a long history of, of what's happening here. But if we look, let's just I just kind of want to walk through it and we'll we'll hit the major points and then we're going to land at the end on something that just blew me away. It really captured me and uh really taught me something that I'd never really thought about. But just go with me now to to verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethany to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So this is the culmination of Jesus's life. Less Three years he's been going all around Palestine, teaching, healing, casting out demons, teaching about the kingdom of God, pronouncing freedom to the captives, release the sight of the blind, healing. Just He is the man. This guy's doing his deal to the utmost. I mean, he is, he's the man, right? And he's coming near to Jerusalem. He's coming near to the city of David. This is a city whose importance runs throughout all of Scripture. I mean, we can't, once again, we're so far removed from the history and the context of the Israelite people and God's people, we can't appreciate how important this city is. It's the city of David. It's even the city called Salem of King Chilzedek, or however you say his name. He is the, the high priest of God. I mean, the, the history there. They would they, Some scholars even say that it was on this mountain, Mount Moriah, where Jerusalem is, that where Abraham took his son Isaac to be sacrificed. The history that goes on on this mountainside is amazing. And so when you're standing in Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, I haven't been there, I'm sure some of you have, and you could explain it better, but from just reading about it, you see across the Kidron Valley, you're standing on the Mount of Olives, you see across the Kidron Valley, and you see Jerusalem spread out there. It's just this massive thing. And it must well up in the people of God when they come traveling to and forth from Jerusalem. The, the power of just the city itself. We also know that this is the Passover time. This is the, the time when the people of God come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And As you all know, the Passover being the time that God said, I'll pass over you because the blood you've, you've sprinkled on your doorposts. This is the celebration of God's grace of his authority and his power to pass over and when the the people are coming into the city i mean it's not just a few people it's not like the 150 of us it's not like the city of marietta it's like 2.5 million people some of the accounts say that over two and a half million people were gathered there and they figure that from the fact that they know that 250,000 animal sacrifices were made at the Passover feast. Can you imagine the blood pouring forth from the city of Jerusalem? The dust mingled with the blood and the animals and the smell and the people and the trash and the 
two-year-olds running. I'm chasing Jacob through the streets all day long. I mean, it'd be insane how many people are there. But it's just a massive party to celebrate the Passover feast. And this is, this is what they're coming to when they're coming down into Jerusalem. And Jesus sends out two disciples and He said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you, as you enter it, you will find a colt on which no one has ever sat. And tie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. The Lord has need of it. This, this brings to mind a story. When I was in Honduras, um, back when I was 17 or 18, we were traveling down. Uh, we were in the middle of nowhere. We were going down dirt roads. We were in the back of pickup trucks like that picture. It took me right back to the back of the pickup truck. And they were flying. And... Um, on our way out, we were, had to go about six hours from the city of Tegucigalpa out into the middle of nowhere. And we had to pass through all these different regions. And some were more dangerous than others. And it ended up that the, the bus we were riding on broke down while we're out in the middle of nowhere. And so we're stranded. And we're 17, 18-year-olds with a couple of adults. And we're just having a good time and singing. It's not a big deal. So we're just like goofing off. And we're messing around the bus. And the teacher's that were with us all went outside the bus and they seemed to be talking about something pretty important. And eventually they brought us out and they said, listen guys, this is a bad situation. We are, uh, we're in a bad area. It's dark. Um, we need to pray. And we're like, whoa, we were on spring break. What are you talking about? <laughs> this isn't good. So, so we all prayed and we prayed for just a few minutes and within a few minutes, I mean less than 10, I don't remember, two trucks show up, pick us up, and take us to the next village. Just like that. Circumstances aligning that we had no control over. People that were going to come and meet us out there like a day or two later just showed up just at the right time in the middle of the night. We talked about this in our small group. I asked, you know, just some random stories that people had of times when God orchestrated events that could not be explained otherwise. You got any stories like that? Stories that just like, and then this happened and that happened and then I drove over here and she drove over there and then a phone call from there and this and that and then all of a sudden I got the job. Like, no one could retell that story, but you know it and you know that looking back on it, God was in it and He weaved it together and He made it work, right? This is kind of like that. It gives us this story. He shows us Jesus. And the wouldn't it be nice if Jesus did this for us? Like if He said, Eric Peddle, I want you to move to Seattle and I want you to take this job and this is what people are going to love you there and everything's going to go well with you and you're going to have five more children and you la di da 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 Liz doesn't want to hear that right now. Um, but God doesn't do that. He doesn't tell us clear and precise directions. But I think the story is in here to help us understand He knows, you know? He knows the story. He knows the outcome. He knows what people are going to say. He knows how people are going to react. And we have to just act in faith. The other night we were sitting at La Fonda Mexican restaurant, which, anyways, La Fonda, and we're eating dinner, just having a good, Liz and I having a good time, and across the way Liz noticed a guy that was sitting by himself at a table, and she just kind of said, Eric, we should go pray for him. And I was like, Immediately, my first thought was, that's awkward. That's weird. <laughs> it's like, go pray for him. For what? I mean, he's probably doing his taxes or, I don't know, he's, he's playing on his iPhone or something. He's got friends right next to him. But, 
like the, the Spirit sparked something in my wife to care for someone, and my immediate reaction was awkward. I mean, how often do we do that kind of thing? When God says go, if we would just go, the outcome is entrusted in His hands, right? If we would just act and just do it. I mean, how, what's going to happen, really, if you go and pray for someone? What's the worst that's going to happen? They laugh at you? So what? You prayed for them. You did your part, right? So let, let us just go when things like that happen. Uh, there's all kinds of stories like this. I think of... Um, I think of David's sermon that he did a while back on um, the paralytic. And these guys tearing a hole through the roof of a house just to get someone in front of Jesus. Just get the man in front of Jesus. That's all that matters. It reminds me of another story. A friend of mine was telling me that there was this, this guy on a plane, and he was on his way to do some kind of mission trip. And while he's just sitting there, he notices coming down the aisle this huge, ginormous, bodybuilding looking guy coming towards him, and he passes him by and goes to the bathroom. And the Lord just spoke to the guy sitting down and said, go pray for that man. And he's, I mean, he's a huge bodybuilding guy. No, God, I'm not. And he got up, and he went, and he just tapped the dude on the shoulder, and he said, sir, I just felt like I I need to pray for you. you, I wanted to ask you, have you ever heard God speak to you? And he was like, shocked. And then he started to just weep. This huge muscle-building guy just started to weep. He said, you have no idea. Just last week, somebody had called me. My doctor called me back, gave me the test results, said, I have cancer. I've spent my whole life working on this body to look good for everyone. And now it's all going to waste. And he just said, I just want to put you before the Father. I just want to put you in the presence of the King that you might hear from Him. And so he just prayed for him. And it's one of those miraculous stories, praise God, just like Bucky's that a couple weeks later, he was healed. The cancer was gone. When we go and we act in faith, God will and can show up. Not always, but we just entrust Him with those outcomes. Going down in verse 8, it says, uh, where's verse 8? So they, they untied this colt. Jesus gets on it and they're riding it. And they... Uh, they're coming down the hill and they brought the colt to Jesus, threw on their cloaks, and he sat on it. Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went out before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. As you might know, the, this proclamation, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, this is... Uh, Hosanna means, Lord, save us. They're crying out, Lord, save us. Who knows what they're crying out for? Some probably from sincere hearts. Some probably just from, save us from political oppression. Save us from this Roman rule. Save us from la-di-da. Who knows? We all do this. We, sometimes we cry out, Hosanna, save us. And sometimes it's sincere. Sometimes it's not. But this is the proper response when we see God work and move. When we look back and and we know that it is the Lord that sent us. This is, this is the, one of the first times, this is the only time when Jesus allows the people to call Him Lord. He said the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of that cult. You go and get it for me. Right? And a couple of verses back, He says the Lord has need of it. And the proper response when we see God move is Hosanna. Praise God in the highest. Right? A lot of other people make the, the observation that 
Hosanna, people crying this out. Just a few days later, they're crying out, crucify Him. Crucify Him. This is the same crowd. Thousands and thousands of people coming into Jerusalem. We do that too. Our hearts change. And there's been times I know of when I've, when I've spent time shouting, Hosanna, save me. And then when He asked me to do something, I said no. And in a sense, maybe not the severity of crucify Him. You know, I want to dumb it down. But no, God, I'm not going to do that. Thank you. I'll have something else. So what happens uh, after this is that as Jesus is, and the disciples are entering Jerusalem, He goes into the temple. And when He had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Um, it's like Jesus is a tourist here for, for a verse or two. He's going around looking at everything in the temple. Remember, when you, when you come into Jerusalem and you see it outstretched, the most prominent feature is the massive temple mount. This is the Herodian. King Herod was, was in charge in the time, and his temple was ridiculously massive. I mean, it was like coming, I think it's the dimensions of it equals something over 40 football fields, the temple mount does. And right in the center of it you know, was the sanctuary, the holy place, and the Holy of Holies, where the, where the guy, where the priest would enter once a year into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifices. But this temple mount, it had all kinds of different architecture on it. It was magnificent. I mean, the highest point was 300 feet high, and it just stood there. And when you're standing on the Mount of Olives looking across at Jerusalem, you can't help but notice this giant temple. You can't help but notice that the focal point of the, the Israelite nation is this temple. That everything revolved around it. That everything worked through it. There was something so significant about this temple that we, we don't have a concept of, or at least I struggle to have a concept of it. It's kind of like um, when Liz and I went to Washington, D.C. a year or two ago. Um, you know, you coming in, the first thing you notice is the, the giant Washington monument, right? Or you notice the Capitol building. Or you look over and you see the Lincoln Memorial. You see these massive, beautiful architectural marvels. I mean, it took 40 years, I think it was, for them to build the Herodian Temple. 40 years. That's a long time to be working on this thing. So for the, for the Israelite nation and for the teachers of the law and the scribes and the Pharisees, this is their house. And so when they're coming into it, Jesus is looking around at it. You'd think that Mark would add a little bit more than he looked around at everything and went out. I think he'd add, and he was amazed by its beauty. I mean, this is in fact what the disciples experienced. In chapter 13, verse 1, it says, And he came out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. They were all amazed by this temple and its glory and its architecture. But uh, the, next, the next scene you get after Jesus had visited the temple is, is on the following day. I can kind of race through here. I don't, I don't like racing through it, but it's like, it's like Mark is ramping up for something with this fig tree thing. He shortens it down from the other Gospels and he shows us that there was something more going on. 
there was something more going on. He says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. This is Jesus. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. This is a... For, for some people, this might be a, a, troubling, a troubling passage. Um, you know, it's Jesus getting mad at a tree. Last time I got mad at a tree, I had to go to the doctor afterwards. It was a, wasn't a great idea. You shouldn't really take your anger out on nature or animals, especially animals. But getting mad at a tree, what sense does that make? But it's, it's real simple. It's a... It's better to give a realistic, real-life picture of something than just say what it is, right? Jesus is given a real-life parable of a truth he's trying to communicate, and he brings it out right here. And he says, after looking at the temple the, the day before, maybe some, some anger was kindled in him, and he sees this fig tree, and he thinks, it's like this. And he knows his disciples are watching. It's like this. The, they, they show that they are that they are of me, they show that they are my people, but they don't do anything to back it up. They say that they are Christians, but there's no power in their lives. There's no real change. And the disciples heard it, and that's it. They were still clueless. And so they came into Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began, he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, uh, when it says the temple here, it's talking about the court of the Gentiles, which was a court outside of the, you know, it wasn't the most holy place. It wasn't even near that. It was it was outside of that. It was still on the Temple Mount, but it was outside of it. And the court of the Gentiles is where they would sell all the animals that the people needed to make these sacrifices. And, I mean, imagine how many animals, 250,000 animals. Some people brought theirs. Other travelers that were coming through, they had to buy theirs. And so there was even vendors set up on the Mount of Olives where they would sell these animals. And so the scribes and the Pharisees during the time thought, they're kind of winning, selling their, their vending over there on the Mount of Olives. Why don't we set up our own over here in the court of the Gentiles where we can make some money off this thing, right? And so they set up these tables and they start exacting exchange rates that were ridiculous. You know, it's fine that you have to sell a good to someone so that they can perform their duty, but the exchange rates that they were doing, it was just extortion and it was wrong. And Jesus comes in and sees this. This is the court of the Gentiles. This is the place where the people that are foreign to Israel come in to learn about God. Imagine this in in our time, that if we had our little group here and then we made out there a court, and if they're unbelievers and we keep them outside those doors over there and then we charge them $50 to come in here, we we charge them to, to get to know more, Right? We do things to keep them away from God. That's the, that's the anger that Jesus felt. That you would put a block between the people that don't know me and the opportunity to know me. That you would put a wall up like that. That's what Jesus was getting so angry about. I mean, why? it takes a lot of energy to flip over a table. It's not just a, 
little fancy passion. This is, a, this is extreme, deep-kindled anger for something. What would make Jesus Christ so angry that He would go and do stuff like that? If you read further, you see in verse 17, and as He was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer? The... Uh, My house should be called a house of prayer. <laughs> I didn't want to tell this story, but I asked Liz um, if there was ever a time that I made something that was, I, I took something that was holy and used it selfishly, just like these guys were, were doing here. Took something as holy as a court that was meant to introduce people to the living God and turned it into something for my own self-absorption. I said, Liz, have I ever done that? And um, She said, yeah. And it was immediate. It wasn't like like I think about it. It was like, you, she's like, you remember that time in high school when you told me how to pray? And I was like, oh, gosh. So self-righteous Eric, 17, 18 years old, we used to pray every morning before class. We were high school sweethearts. And I got my, I woke up one day and I just decided, hey, I'm the prayer king and I know how to pray. And so we were praying in our car one morning. I was like, Liz, you, you're not doing it right. You're just not yeah, isn't it funny? I, th- I thought I was serious. I was like, you don't know what you're doing. It needs to be way more passionate. I mean, she prayed the most simple, sincere, beautiful prayers. And I'm like, no, it's got to be like, and God heal me and bring me back to you and all this junk. And she's like, get out of my car. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a number of ways in which we take the most holy things and we make them so impure, whether it's in self-righteousness or it's just in insolence or just our lack of self-control. But the Lord's house shall be called a house of prayer. The most important thing that the temple was was a connection between the people of God and God Himself. Right? The most important thing between the temple the temple was there so that people could have a connection with God. Because this was broken. This was shattered when man decided to do it his own way. When, God was, when guys were like, we're going we're gonna to pack up and do this our own way back in the Garden of Eden. It was done. No more presence of God all over the place. No more, I will live among you. I was reading this article in a magazine. It said that the greatest promise that we've received isn't the promise of forgiveness. It's the promise of the presence of God. That's the whole point. To be back in the presence of God. That's what we are separated from. So for, for these people to be putting a wall, making money off of keeping people out of the kingdom. Can you imagine an unbeliever trying to pray while there's 50,000 sheep walking by, bang? You can't do it. You can't understand how to pray when there's animals and money and so Jesus cleanses it. It's the same thing we would do. If some guy came into my house and tried to put something in there or tried to attack my family, that's my house. You get out of my house. I'm going to cleanse it. He owns it. This is, I mean, when Jesus is coming down the mountain and sees Jerusalem there, you can't help but think, he's thinking, that's my house. I own it. I am Lord of that. That is mine. And so he cleanses it and he Cast out the money changers. This connection that we have to have with God, is uh, it's hard for a lot of us. We've, we've all had fathers here that were 
partial images of the real, true, and living God, right? They're not all perfect. None of, them, none of our fathers here are perfect. And we get bits and pieces of what the true God is like. But the one true and living God, a connection with Him, is what we're all after. This was hard for me to, to take when I was studying this because I'm, I'm very much obsessed with, with Jesus. But when it comes to God, it's kind of like, mm, I'll just stick with Jesus. I don't know for some of you, it might be the other way around. I, I just stick with God. And, but the connection that we want to have with our Father is real and deep and it's undeniable. And the more you pursue it, the more you'll find that you'll fall in love with it. It's like when I come home and uh, start playing with Jacob in the backyard and Liz is watching me and she just looks out and she goes, Eric, when, when you're around, he's just, it, he's alive. And it's like, it's so true. When... When daddy's around, we come alive. When our dad comes out and he meets with us, that's when our hearts light up. That's when our minds are set on fire. That's what we're after is the indwelling presence of God. That's what the temple was for. So Jesus, after cleansing it, all the chief priests and the scribes heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because of because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. This, um, this reminds me one last story. When uh, about two two months ago, I couldn't sleep one night, and I woke up early and went out, made a little campfire, and I was just praying. And I, this was be, this was in the middle of us having about sixteen different options for what we're going to do with our lives. Um, that I come up with every two minutes, another option for what we're going to do. And so I'm sitting there, I'm just praying, and I'm like nearly crying. Just God, just tell me what you want me to do. All I want to do is what you want me to do. Just tell me, and everything will be okay, and then I'll do it, and then it'll go on. And I was just praying, and I was singing, and then I got this image, like clear as day, of Jacob sitting on my knee, my son, my two-year-old son, sitting on my knee, and I'm holding him. And I'm just saying, I love you because you're my son. You haven't done a thing for me, but I love you because you're my son. And while I'm sitting there just meditating in that, just thinking how much I love my son, all of a sudden, I was on the knee of God. And he was saying, I love you because you're my son. And you are well-pleasing to me because you are my child. And that's it. You don't need... To add on to that, if you're an heir or a child of God, you've got it. You're in the kingdom, right? You're in direct connection with the living God. And the beauty of that is insurmountable. There is, um, there's, there's so much to say here about this temple. As we all know, in a few days, Jesus in history goes... And He makes His own body, the new temple for us. He becomes the new mediator between us and God. And the old covenant passes away and the new covenant is instituted. Right? It says in, I believe it's Colossians, there's a, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers, 
dominions or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. This is the beauty of being in a relationship with Jesus, is that no longer do we have to go to a temple to find the presence of God. No longer do we have to pray and yearn and seek for it and work our way closer to Him. He is everywhere. He's in all things. And in Jesus Christ, all things hold together. Being in the presence of God is more about an awareness that you already are. If you're a child of God, you live in the presence of God, right? And you are the temple of God. Just as Christ became the new temple, you as well are members of the same thing. If you see in 1 Corinthians, it says, Do you not know you are God's temple? That is, God's Spirit dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 6.19, it says, Or do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. In Ephesians, for, you, for through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So as we come together as the temple of God, to the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ, we come into the presence of the living God, into communion with Him. And it's communion that we, uh, we're going to take now. And I just want to want to make this one last point. When we were in D.C., uh, we went to, um, what was it, the Holocaust Museum. Anybody been in the Holocaust Museum? It is intense, to say the least, in terms of the emotional impact it weighs on you, right? To imagine all the human wreckage and carnage there. And at the end, if you remember, there's a, there's a hall called the Hall of Remembrance, and it's just a large round room that's completely empty, and it just has some benches, and I think it says uh, a place for meditation and prayer. Just a place to remember, and there's a lone flame burning. Imagine, this is what it's like. If you, don't, if you can't grasp the picture yet of what it's like to abuse the temple of God, it's as if we took all the circus gift store gifts and took it into that hall of remembrance and began selling it and trying to people now communicate now now try to remember the holocaust while we sell gifts in here while we set up this elaborate thing so that we can make some money because look lots of people come through here let's make some money see the when we try to to water it down try to dumb it down when we and our selfishness and self-absorption miss it and start blocking people off, whether it's our spouse or our friends or our neighbors or our own selves, and hardening our hearts to the connection that we have with the Father. It's as ugly as that. It's as ugly as defaming the Hall of Remembrance for the Holocaust. As we come to take communion, if the people that are serving want to go ahead and come on up, I just want to encourage you to examine yourself. You are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. The power of the living God lives within you. Now just let's let's just pray for a moment. I just want to ask Father if there is anything that would hinder us that would keep us from knowing your presence. 
God, just speak to our hearts. Show us what it is. If there is a bitterness that we harbor against one of our spouses, if there's anger that we have at our, at our boss, God, this isn't about us trying to find something that we're, God, we need to feel bad about. This is Spirit just speak to us. So if there's anyone here who they just know, there's something weighing on your heart, there's some sin. Guys, it keeps you from experiencing the reality of the cross in its fullness. The other week I lied to uh, Katie during church. I told her that she sent me an email to volunteer and I just said, I just ignored it and I said, I didn't get it, Katie. And uh, I lied to her right there and then. And I tried to come in here and worship. And the whole time my heart was just hard as a rock. I couldn't lift my hands. I couldn't sing. Guys, the sin keeps you from God. That's the point. The point of repentance is get closer to God. Not a, anything else. So if there's something that's between you and someone else, don't take communion until that's clean. If you've got to make a phone call, walk out, make a phone call. If you've been got something between you and your spouse, stand up, walk out, and reconcile with your spouse. Now is the time. Not later. Do it now. If there's anything at all, just lay it down at the cross. You can come and kneel at these benches in the front. There will be some people for prayer if you need prayer. But before you take communion, examine yourself and ask, I'm the temple of God. If there's anything keeping me from Him, let it be known. As you come forward, there's uh, gluten-free bread on the chairs. You just take the bread and dip it in the cup and then uh, return to our seats and we'll have time of worship. The Spirit of the Lord is Spirit of 